everybody, and welcome to the Short from Obesity podcast. The topic today is vials for biologics. To most of you, probably two well-known keywords, vials and biologics. To learn more about what does this connection mean of the two words, I have with me Diana Lebel. Diana is the global product manager at SHOT and is responsible for the bulk vials. She leads and coordinates developments for glass vials, so as you may imagine, she's our vial champion. Hi, Diana. Nice to have you here today. Hi, Niels. Thanks for the introduction. Nice to be here again. Okay. So, Diana, let's start. My first question, it's about yeah, the title. So, the Pharmavacity session is called Vials for Biologics. Why is that topic important? And specifically, why are vials specifically important for biologics? I mean, we, we've seen a steep increase of biologic drugs during the last decades. And this rise has by far not come to an end yet. The growth rate is still incredible and more and more therapies are launched, which have the potential to cure diseases that nobody ever dreamt of 30 or 40 years ago. And of course, vials are of great importance because they are the container of choice for new developments. <laughs> Actually, they are somehow a compromise. Um, ampules would be perfect because only glass is in direct contact with the drug, but ampules are more difficult to handle and of course there's a risk of particles. Syringes are of course very easy to use, but a lot of different components or materials are in contact with the drug and this increases complexity because a multitude of possible interactions exist. And when using a vial, only the glass is in constant direct contact with the drug and the influence of the stopper is less prominent and you have a medium level of ease of use. Understood. Yeah, makes full sense. Um, at the same time, so really in the pharma industry, the word biologic is literally everywhere. So Diana, my question, can you provide us an easy definition or an exact definition of what is it? So please put all us on the same page when we talk about biologic drugs. Yeah, of course. So I, I actually really like the definition um, used by Emgen in one of their publications. And it goes like this. Biologics are therapies derived from living organisms. And that's the key point. You use, for example, genetically modified bacteria to produce the protein of interest. And actually, the bacteria are used as kind of little factories um, in that way. So living organisms um, in the end meaning cells are always at some point involved in the development of biologic therapies. And um, genetic engineering actually definitely provided the basis for biologic drugs um, in the 70s. So um, the first monoclonal antibody generated, I think, in 1975, and the first um, FDA-approved monoclonal antibody in 1986. And genetic engineering includes the ability to create artificial genes in the lab. And it is also often referred to as DNA printing. And another necessary element of, of biologic drugs um, is the ability of, of re recombining genetic material of interest. So isolating and cloning specific genes and putting them in a new order. So recombinant DNA technology. And these are the two main technologies to produce new DNA and therefore basis for large-scale production of biopharmaceuticals. And I already mentioned um, uh, monoclonal antibodies, so the first one approved in 1986. And actually, um, a technology called hyperdoma technology enabled the production of, of these um, antibodies by combining the properties of B cells and myeloma cells. 
and still many new launch drugs are monoclonal antibodies based on this fundament. Okay, so biologics and especially monoclonal antibodies are therapies already developed for quite some time now. Why now having a dedicated session uh, on vials for biologics, Diana? Yeah, I think we are now at a stage where we have a deep understanding of the different challenges associated with biological drugs. We've done our homework and invested a lot in different kinds of studies associated to the different challenges. And the experiences we made either as yeah, resulting in dedicated products solving this issue or um, simply um, approving the suitability of our existing portfolio. Um, can you provide us um, an example of the kind of challenges you've found out? Yes, yes, of, of course. So, for example, we noticed that there are more and more biologic drugs which use buffers in the higher pH range. And this is a challenge for standard borosilicate glass vials that are the common standard for parenteral drugs. And borosilicate glass is a well-known, proven, reliable material, and it provides stability over, for the drug over, over shelf life. Yeah? But when it comes to pH higher than yeah, around 7, a hydroxide ion attack takes place. And this attack is continuous and dissolutes the silicon oxygen bonds of the glass network, releasing network modifiers elements into the solution. And these leachables might have an impact on the drug, resulting in denaturation of protein, aggregation, or, or even deactivation of, of the drug. And this, of course, is something that needs to be carefully evaluated. Okay. And what kind of solution is a proposal here, Diana, in this case? Yeah, so, so we used um, our well-established and, and patented PICVD technology to apply an inner coating that acts as a barrier, even in high pH. And um, this is an SIOCH coating, and we called the product Eric Care because it takes care of the drug stability. And we have performed several extractable studies using different buffers at different pHs up to 48 weeks um, at, at 40 degrees Celsius. And the results of these studies show um, Eric Care's really superior leaching behavior. And in addition, we used microscopic imaging to analyze the glass surface and, and we can and if you can see any signs of attack on the glass. And also these results were, were amazing. And an additional advantage is that the coating is hydrophobic, resulting in an improved behavior when it comes to the emptying of the vial. Okay, so you've talked about this Evercure. So that does, does it mean that Evercure is only suitable for these drugs in a high pH range? No, no, no not at all. So um, Evercare's leaching um, behavior is superior to standard glass vials in general, but for drugs in the lower to medium pH range, shot type 1 plus, so our well-established vials with an inner SiO2 coating, um, most probably will be the better um, option. But as always, a lot of factors need to be considered and therefore this definitely needs to be tested case by case with the respective drug product. Um, what we've seen for many, many times is um, that Type 1 Plus has an excellent performance for water for injection, for example. Um, their pH shift is an issue uh, with standard glass vials. And due to the low ionic, ionic strength of neutral water, the released alkali causes a shift towards basic, ending in hydrolysis of the glass network. Okay, so uh, you've talked uh, before about the PICVD. A uh, uh, process is this also used for this type one plus vials you're mentioning? 
Yes, yes. Uh, PICVD is also used for type 1 plus vials. So, and PICVD stands for Plasma Impulse Chemical Vapor Deposition. It is a shot patented technique and its uniqueness is that it ensures a covalent bond between the coating and the glass substrate. And this differentiates it from the other solutions used as barriers. A covalent bond means a bond on an atomic basis, and that's the strongest chemical bond achievable. And the technology works like this. So the vial itself is actually used as a vacuum chamber. And HMDSO, so hexamethyldisiloxane, gas is blown into the vial. And easily said, this gas is then split into its components, what is achieved by the application of heat and microwaves. And based on how you adapt these parameters, so temperature, pressure, pulse frequency, duration, different kind of coatings are achieved that bond to the glass substrate with different properties, fulfilling different purposes. Really exciting what can happen inside a small glass vial <laughs> in terms of coatings. So um, are there other coatings besides um, Evercur and Type 1 Plus? Indeed, there's one additional coating, um, our top Lyo. And this is not a barrier, but a functional coating. And as the naming already indicates, it is intended for the usage during lyophilization. Actually, here we come back to the beginning um, of our discussion, to the um, biological stability. And if the biologic stability cannot be ensured in liquid form, freeze-drying is an option to achieve this. And assumptions are that also in the future, still more than 50% of biologics will need to undergo this treatment. And freeze-drying is a complex, time- and, and cost-intensive process. And one topic that unluckily quite often occurs is a phenomenon called fogging, meaning you have this fog-like appearance above the truck product, um, above the so-called lyocake. And these vials usually need to be rejected, and this leads, of course, to elevated uh, production costs. And due to the hydrophobic behavior, top lyo vials completely extinct this fogging, leading to more efficient processing. Okay, interesting rushes uh, regarding uh, lyophilized drugs in future. Mm. Can every biologic drug be, in fact, lyophilized, Diana? So unfortunately not. So coming back to the cited definition of biologics in the beginning, derived from living organisms, also mRNA, viral vaccines, or even cell therapies fall under this definition. And even if there are as often in such cases different opinions uh, on the definition. The issue is that these kind of therapies are biological active some cells even down to a temperature of around minus 150 degrees Celsius. And for the others, the usually deepest temperature necessary is around minus 80 degrees Celsius. And some are even stable at minus 20 degrees Celsius or even at fridge temperatures. But again, it depends. But of course, you want to avoid any kind of mutation to ensure the drug's efficacy and, and safety. Okay, so this means that some drugs will always need deep cold storage, Diana. So, so I think never say never also applies to always, I guess. So never say always. Um, I know that there are attempts to even freeze dry cells, but these studies are, at least based on my current knowledge, really at the very early research state. When I talk to experts, I get totally different answers with regards to the prospect of, of these technologies. But I think what can be said for sure is that storage at deep cold temperatures will be something that will stay for now. And this is also the reason why we looked into this topic as well. Okay, so I, I understand and we all 
have experienced in the last two to three years that the requirements on coal storage uh, pose a challenge for the logistics. For the glass vials, what exactly does this um, status mean and what needs to be evaluated? I think there are a few things related to this topic. So, so first is CCI, so container closure integrity. At common temperatures, the system of vial, rubber stopper and crimp just works fine. But these materials change their behavior at very cold temperatures. And one thing is the different shrinkage rate of the different components. So the glass vials behavior is neglectable, but the stopper shrinks. In addition, due to the glass transition temperature of elastomers, the stopper goes from a flexible into a brittle state at a certain temperature, depending from the used material composition, of course. And these behaviors lead to the situation that the crimp might not be able to hold the CCI because it might not be able to compensate for a gap between a brittle shrunk stopper and a vial that almost didn't change. And this is why we performed tests at minus 80 degrees Celsius that I've shown in the Pharmaversity session. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for that. Um, can you provide, Diana, an overview of what other relevant topics shall be considered? So one additional topic is for sure the adherence of labels. So at these cold temperatures, you simply might have the challenge that certain adhesives or labels do not work. Even ink might not be stable. And there are solutions, but you will need to, to focus on that. And um, especially for high-value drugs such as gene and cell therapies, unique identification for traceability reasons becomes more and more important. And um, within our smart container project, we developed a solution to apply a unique code via latest laser technology, our Everic SmartVile. And this enables a stable code over time and traceability on unique container bases, even if files need to be stored at deep cold temperatures. And we have finalized um, the concept now and um, are now in discussions with regard um, yeah, to the industrialization of, of that product. An additional other topic is breakage, so respectively the strength of the vial. We see an increasing interest and have a lot of conversations with customers on, on that topic. And there's still some research to be done to thoroughly understand certain influencing factors and mechanisms. But we already did some tests and could show the superior performance of strengths optimized vials, what also has been part of the Pharmaversity session. Yes, so many topics with you, Diana, and uh, uh, the ones that are coming. So coming back to these brand new technologies uh, you were mentioning, mRNA or viral vector therapies, um, are there any other particular topics related to that? So one is for sure the residual emptying part. So many of these therapies are administered in very small volumes, meaning that the vials are often very low filled. And still, due to the reasons for processing and stability, often to our vials are used. And this means that it's crucial to completely empty the vials in order to secure dosage accuracy and avoid overfilling which would be, by the way, a very highly expensive way to deal with that problem. And therefore, a hydrophobic inner coating, as of every care, for example, will be beneficial to be able to get the most volume possible out of the vial. And we have performed tests on, on this topic in general. And yeah, we have, we have shown that the extractable volume can be easily improved by, by roughly four, four or five um, percent. And that sounds little, but it has a huge impact. My last question, Diana, to close this session today. 
when should the customer think about the primary packaging? Yeah, so actually a typical thing that we see with smaller companies is that they are focused on the efficacy of the product. And, and this is yeah, totally understandable. And thereby they oversee that the primary packaging actually is an integral part of safeguarding this efficacy. And um, you might now think, okay, ah, okay, that only applies to the container interaction part. But I have to say, no, it applies for all kind of mentioned topics. We just recently had the case that a customer filled vials over nominal volume, um, which were defrozen, so minus 80 degrees Celsius, and he experienced breakage that put the clinical trial on risk. And yeah, with the right vial, this could have been prohibited. So to summarize, it is crucial to consider the primary packaging at a very early stage. I like this as a takeaway, most probably. So uh, uh, don't don't risk time to market, don't risk clinical trials, and talk to the experts as soon as possible. So thanks a lot, Diana, for this interesting talk we had and for guiding the audience through the potential challenges and how to deal with them by the right selection of the vial. Was a pleasure again, Diana. Thanks a lot, and I wish you good success with the developments uh, developments that are coming. Thanks to the audience for hearing. Take care and bye bye. Bye bye.